0: Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the When Life Gives You Lemons Go Vegan podcast. I'm your host, Corinne Nidja, and this podcast is where I share people's incredible stories of recovery after adopting a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet. I also interview doctors and other experts on the show who are experts in plant-based eating for health and recovery. This week, I was lucky enough to interview intensive care doctor, Dr. Andrew Davies. Dr. Andrew Davies has a wonderful podcast called New Normal Project, and it's on iTunes and Stitcher and all the places that you can listen to podcasts. And it In his podcast, he talks about how he started to focus on a new normal, basically, a new type of normal, including exercise, mindfulness, diet, all those types of things, when he reached a breaking point in his career. So this episode is talking about that, that the podcast and his work as an intensive care doctor, especially his work educating people on how not to become an ICU patient in the future. Uh, From all of his experience in ICU, he feels he has a greater understanding of the types of signposts people come into intensive care with. And this episode, we kind of talk about some of those signposts and obviously what we can do to try and avoid getting any of those signposts. And if we have them, to overcome them so that we can avoid intensive care for ourselves in the future. I look forward to sharing this episode with you because Dr. Andrew has come, Dr. Andrew, Dr. Davies has come so far himself with his own health and wellness journey. He now does morning swims in the freezing cold Melbourne oceans every day. And I love following his journey on Instagram. It's wonderful to see someone out and about in the morning and someone who has taken control of their health and gone from being a super stressed out doctor in intensive care, burnt out and unwell and overweight to being someone who is now thriving, fit, healthy and spreading this message through his podcast and his work and his talks. I attended one last year, which I also spoke at, which was the Nutrition in Medicine Symposium run by the wonderful Lucy Stegley at Raw Events. And that talk was really inspirational to me. I found it a great perspective I never thought about how to avoid intensive care until that moment. So, yeah, I hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And if you haven't yet subscribed to this podcast, I put out new episodes every Sunday slash Monday, which you can listen to on iTunes and Stitcher app for Android. So, without further ado, here
1: is Dr. Andrew Davies.
0: Hello, Andrew, and thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: What a pleasure it is, Corinne. I'm so glad to join you today and have a good chat about All plant-based things.
0: Excellent. So I've given you a little bit of an introduction in the intro, but can you please just expand on who you are and how you came to this way of eating?
1: Yeah, well, it's a bit of a complicated story, Corinne. I'm I'm an intensive care doctor, so I work in the intensive care unit in uh, a Melbourne hospital. For many years, I worked at the Alfred Hospital, which is kind of the biggest biggest intensive care unit in in Melbourne. And then about five years ago, I sort of had a bit of a, a blow up in my life, I guess it's fair to say. Uh, it's a combination of getting stressed, getting anxious, getting burnt out. But a whole series of events happened and, and I just basically had to leave my job pretty abruptly. And at that stage, I was kind of becoming a parent again. I had two young kids at that stage. My wife had gone back to work because we needed to get some income after I'd stopped working. And I was enjoying being a parent again. And I did a lot of reading and self-development and stuff on the internet just to, to try to find out how I could develop a better life and not get into the problem that I already had. And amongst many things I read, uh, the, the nutrition bit came up. and And to me, I'd always been interested in nutrition. I'm Uh, I've been doing research on nutrition in the ICU patient, actually, the person who's lying in the bed really sick, we have to feed them and usually through an, a nasogastric tube, we call it, a tube that goes through your nose into the stomach. And I've been doing research on on all this sort of thing for, for many years. And so I've always been interested in nutrition and I thought I ate pretty healthily. Uh, not a lot of red meat, although I must admit at that stage, I really did like a good steak every now and then. Uh, and But I was more more chicken and fish than, than red meat. But uh, I realized quite quickly that, that maybe I needed to eat better than that. And uh, I read a book th- for the second time, which really opened my eyes. It's the book by uh, Walter Willett, uh, which is called Eat, Drink and Be Healthy. And uh, this is a, a book that goes through in lay terms all the, all the good uh, – you know, he's done a lot of uh, epidemiological research – looking at the big groups in America, the, the, the physician's study and the nurse's study. And he's followed these people for many years and, and found what are the good things in their diet. And he's, he doesn't talk about being vegan, but he certainly talks about eating more vegetables. And having read that again for the second time, I thought, maybe I've got to do more of this. And around that time, my wife and I were working on the, uh, the five and two diet, which was very popular that year. I don't know if, if your yeah. listeners have heard of that. The fasting diet, basically. You fast for two days uh, or, or don't eat much for two days, basically. And then the other five days, you can eat what you want. And l- doing that and reading this book made me think more about it. And around about that time, um, my, my wife's aunt, uh, who was an elderly lady, still is an elderly lady. She's alive. Uh, she she uh, developed uh, some really bad angina which is chest pain related to to her heart disease. She had blocked arteries in her heart. And she'd had many stents. And around this time, she was told by her doctor that there was nothing more that they could do for her. She could uh, just basically enjoy the rest of her life. Uh, She was now pretty sedentary. She'd been very active. She'd been bike riding for the last few years before this. Uh, She'd been climbing mountains in the past. She was very active. And now she'd been told to be sedentary and just sit back and and basically wait till she died. Mm. And she didn't like this idea and her GP was a very smart doctor and he gave her a book that really changed all of our lives. It changed her life uh, and then, and then my, my wife and I. And that book, as you probably, many of your listeners will know, is called Will Esselstyn's book, uh, How to Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease. And so she, she took a look at this book and started reading it and started eating that way, which was essentially a very whole foods, strict whole foods, plant-based diet, no oil, uh, and that sounded a bit weird to me to to have no oil and no nuts and not even avocado so this was pretty harsh i thought but she she gave it she showed told me about the book told me how she'd been on this diet and how great she was feeling and we said well, i said i'm a doctor i've never heard of this guy i can't <laughs> believe it's true and i doubt that it's going to work but give it a go good luck to you if that's what your gp thinks go and give it a go ring me if you feel better, and if your angina, which she was getting three episodes a day at that stage, chest pain that would stop her, she couldn't even cross the road without getting it. She would, she, I said, ring it, ring me if it if it gets better. Sure enough, six months later, she rang me and she said, Andrew, would you believe it? I haven't had an attack of angina for five full months, not one attack. And I said, wow, the penny just dropped, and I thought there's wow. something in this. So of course, you know, I've, I've answered your question a long way, uh, Corinne, but what I did was basically start researching uh, Caldwell Esselstyn's work, I found T. Colin Campbell, I found the movie Forks Over Knives and that was probably the next penny to drop. Claire, my wife and I sat in bed one night on Netflix watching watching the movie Forks Over Knives, perhaps it was a DVD, I can't remember but basically uh, we just couldn't believe these these stories in the movie of people whose lives were changing as they dropped eating meat and stopped dropped eating animal products. So we sat there and thought, wow, this is really interesting. And as the credits rolled at the end of the movie, we just looked at each other and said, we've got to do this. And so pretty well overnight, we changed to uh, to a, a, a much healthier plant-based diet. We didn't go straight away to drop all meat. We, we kept fish for a little while. But after a few months, I was even not enjoying the taste of fish and loving the diversity that was, was in the plant-based meals. And gradually, we dropped the fish, dropped the, the milk or the cheese and milk completely. And and really, we've been pretty well whole foods, plant-based ever since, which is about four years now. And since then, I noticed amazing things happen to me. I felt so much better. Uh, I noticed things like my, my hay fever. I had allergic rhinitis, and that just basically fell away. And and I'd stopped needing to take tablets. So uh, I was good. Telfast, you know those tablets that yeah. you have antihistamines. Oh, I lived on them for like fifteen years, and all of a sudden I didn't need them anymore. So I knew I suddenly realised this was you know really really valuable. Uh, and I also am a runner. And I found at that time that as I was running, uh, I could recover so much better after every one of my long runs. You know, as, as, a, as a sort of endurance athlete, you tend to go out on a Sunday and do a long run, something from, you know, 15 to 25 to 30 kilometers, depending on what event you're running for. And I would often come home from that while I was eating meat and be sore for mm. one, two, three days sometimes. Wow. And I thought that was normal. Mm. Then I started becoming plant-based. And when I would run, I literally could run again the next day. And that just overwhelmed me how how valuable that was. So essentially, that's why I became plant based. Uh, of course, a few other things had to click into place too for me to sort of build myself back up to go back to work and sort myself out. And that included understanding. Uh, meditation, which I started around that time. Uh, also, uh, getting out and exercising more. I I, had, I I tell you I'm a runner, but for a while there, for five years before I crashed at work, I was not running. And so basically, I had to, uh, had to start again, and I enjoyed just getting out and running. It was so much fun. Uh, and then the last piece is sleep. Uh, clearly, sleep is so important to our lifestyles. And so I spent uh, I, I did a 30-day challenge essentially to, to to get better sleep, try to go to bed earlier, try to get a good eight, nine hours sleep every night. And I noticed the difference was amazing. So so I, I won't bore you with that that aspect of it, but when you put all those things together. I don't and, think it's boring. <laughs> no, it's not boring, but, but <laughs> I, I guess mostly we probably want to talk about the, the, the plant-based aspect. And, and so when I put it all together with the connections I was starting to redevelop with my family, I realised there were five vital ingredients to a better lifestyle. And just to say them again, I see them as, as healthier eating, uh, exercise, mindfulness or meditation, sleeping optimally, and then developing your, your connections. And so now, uh, to finish your question properly, you know that's what I see as, as what I want to do now. I realize now that it, the intensive care patients that, that, that end up or the people that end up in intensive care as patients often have bad attitudes to all those things they often don't eat well they don't sleep well they don't meditate they've never heard of it they're often sedentary not exercising they're often lonely people who have you know difficult stressful situations and so they often can score 0 out of 5 on on those pillars as i see them and so i wonder now how much that bad lifestyle contributes to the patients that I'm seeing in the intensive care, and I'd like to spend, you know, the next part of my career trying to get to people before they even get to the intensive care, so that, so that therefore they can uh, not need to come there, which would be ideal. It might put me out of a job, but I'd love it if we didn't need as need as many intensive care beds because people are much more healthy. That's where I'm kind of aimed at at the moment.
0: I think that is a tremendous goal and ambition. I think all of those things are so important, and I actually. For the folks who are listening, this this, this episode is called, this podcast is called When Life Gives Your Lemons Go Vegan. But I do think that making the transition to a whole food, plant based diet is made so much easier when you do put all these five pillars in place, possibly even first in some cases. Uh, Obviously, diet is incredibly beneficial to disease and. And healing the body, but it is very hard to maintain or begin a diet and then maintain a diet and be consistent with a diet if you're exhausted, if you're underslept, if you're stressed, if you don't exercise, you don't have that those endorphins and that feeling in your body that makes you want to eat healthier. Like I know for myself, when I exercise, I I want to put the right fuel in my body just naturally. And those connections with your if your connections with your family and your friends aren't aren't strong, you can feel lonely. And in that loneliness, you can t- turn to f- like foods like processed foods, high-fat, high-salt junk foods for your comfort, which we've talked about so many times because most people that have been on this podcast all experience using food as a crutch, as a comfort, as a source of s- emotional and psychological support. So I would love, Dr. Andrew, if you could go more into depth about how c- – I know I listened to your talk last year about how people can avoid going into intensive care, and I would love if you could share more about, about your thoughts on how these listeners can avoid entering into intensive care in the future.
1: Well, I guess the first thing, Corinne, is just to explain what the people are like inside an intensive care patient, intensive care unit, because many, many people have heard of someone being in intensive care, or sometimes we've had a loved one who has been in there, But you've probably only, if you've been there in that situation, you've only concentrated on your loved one and not understood who else was in the intensive care unit. So I work at Frankston Hospital here in Melbourne, and we have 15 bed spaces, and we usually have 12 or 13 of those full at any one stage. That's as many nurses as we can provide. That's sort of full for us. And it's pretty well always full. And the sort of people that come in can be all sorts of variety of people. We really do get a massive variety, but often elderly people with things like infections, chest infection or a, a urinary infection. Uh, we often see uh, other less elderly people with with things like abdominal surgery. They might have had a, an operation on parts of their belly, whether it's their gallbladder or their, their bowel. Uh, we often see younger people who've been in, involved in, in, you know, Drug-taking activities, perhaps, who have sometimes even uh, developed, you know, diseases related to their to their drug use. We sometimes see people who are sad, who are depressed, and sometimes have suicide attempts, and we see overdoses in that situation. So we see a a mix of, of of people. But what I find usually is when I walk around the intensive care unit, the majority, if not all, of the patients will have one of the chronic lifestyle diseases as their their past history we call it that you know a reason for them coming to 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 be sick and so things like uh, obesity uh hypertension diabetes uh having had a stroke in the past all these these western chronic diseases that we now understand are, are very frequent in in those people and so i some you know i, I there are also people come in without any of those. Of course, you can have a car accident and and be perfectly fit and and beforehand and, and become become sick in the ICU. But the majority usually have these chronic problems, and so I start I've started to wonder over the last few years, having been an intensive care doctor now for twenty five years, I'm starting to wonder how much the lifestyle is contributing as a as to the to the disease that they get that takes them into the ICU. For example, say say you're a a a. a Um, you you develop an infection. It's flu season. It's in in the winter like we are now and you get a bit of a flu and it turns into a chest infection such as pneumonia. In the average person who who does not eat well and does not sleep well and does not exercise much uh, and may be lonely and not have great connections, I wonder if that person's put at much more risk. So therefore their pneumonia will now make them so much more sick that they now need to go on what we call a ventilator or a respirator machine. Mm. And so, therefore, they'll be stuck in the ICU maybe for a week while they're given antibiotics. And many will survive, but some will not. And so, those patients, I guess, uh, are, are I wondering, I'm wondering whether they get more of the severity of their illness because of the, the diseases they have, whereas someone who is – You know, 75, still swimming every day, still, you know, going for a run three times a week, eating a a very vegetable strong diet or a plant-based focused diet. You know, also maybe meditating, very connected with their family and their friends and has a purpose in their life and all the the good things. That person, I suspect when they get their pneumonia, that they probably brush it off much more quickly. Their body has much more ability and immunity and healing ability to, to, to treat it itself. Mm -hmm. And so they might get sick. They might come to the hospital. They might need the antibiotics, but with a bit of luck, they're not going to even need to come to intensive care. And so I think it can be that valuable. There's not a lot of evidence or data to support this, I must be honest, because we haven't really thought about whether lifestyle diseases can really cause people to come to intensive care. We understand it can cause a lot of death and mortality and things in life in in people that are living in the community, but those who come to hospital, we're not really sure. But my sense, having looking around the ICU and seeing people who are overweight, who do have sedentary lifestyles and do have all these chronic diseases, I think, therefore, we should try to prevent them. And so that's, that's my message, try and you know, get to people so that they never have to go to an intensive care unit. It's a scary, lonely, horrible place. I don't enjoy going to work there because we're well, dealing with sad people who are standing around a bed looking at somebody who, who sometimes doesn't look anything like they did you know, three days beforehand. And so I, I was in intensive care once. Uh, my wife was in intensive care once. She, ha- she had a, a a delivery, a baby delivery related problem and ended up in intensive care. And I had a heart surgery when I was 18. I, I remember that my my parents would not bring my brother and sister in to see me because I looked so different in, in a bed with a breathing tube down my throat, and so we are scared. It's a scary place. It's not something you you want to you want to sort of just front up to, and so therefore I think if we can do whatever we can in our lives to to prevent ourselves getting to intensive care, that's a good idea. So again, just to say to them to focus on a good ex, good diet, on exercise, mindfulness, uh, and good sleep. It's it's going to hopefully keep you out of there. That's that's my my hope.
0: So when you're saying those things, if if people are listening and they're like, but where what what, should I, what can I how can I start today? Where can I start today? What would be the thing that you would say? This is what you should you could start today. If you've got no idea, you've never heard of this way of eating, you've never thought about these five pillars. As you said, lots of people don't even know what meditation is or how to do it. So where could someone start today to prevent themselves? possibly ending up in ICU down the track?
1: That, that's just a superb question, Corinne, because I think a lot of people hear all these experts, inverted commas, giving these these talks about all these exciting ideas, but then they don't know where to start. And, and I'll be honest, my journey from being a burnt-out professional to going back to work was about two years, and I took it very slowly along that way. My, the first thing I actually did was get out and run. Because I'd been a runner, I literally thought, I've got to get out and do it again. And so I started taking my kids to school, dropping at school, and then going for a run around the local park and building up from there. So for me, it was exercise. But I I think any one of those four, perhaps the four things that I mentioned, exercise, sleep, meditation, uh, and diet, I think you've got to take just one of them and work on them. Habits are hard to, to to make. And so starting with one thing that you can do is is a really important question. So so to answer to, to answer your question the way I would suspect with diet, because your podcast is mostly about that, I I actually found the way I could do it for myself was literally this this that every time I sat down to a meal or every time I had a choice to make of food. I just tried to pick the healthier choice. So if I went to the, I was, I was, I was say like we're talking now, ten o'clock. It's probably coming up to morning tea. If if I was going to, you know, after we've had this conversation, go into the kitchen and grab something to eat, I would look in the cupboard, and there'd be, you know, at that stage we still had a lot of snacks that probably wouldn't be very healthy. Yeah, yeah. But of course, I had a bowl of apples and you know a bowl of fruit, and so I would go and grab the apple. And literally every time, choose should I have the apple. Or should I have that that um, muesli bar or whatever it might be? And I would try to pick the healthier one. When I went to a restaurant, of course, there's a menu full of many items. And I would go for the most vegetarian type option. And sometimes I, I, I was served meat. Sometimes, you know, a, a plate of meat would be put in front of me at one of those dinners where you can't really control what's happening. Okay, I ate a little bit of it just to make the people at my table happy, maybe one bite, and then I just ate the vegetables and I went home a little bit hungrier. But I made a choice each time, and I think that's the key. to, to, to For me, it was just to, to eat the healthiest choice on every occasion that I could.
0: That's a really good point, and I think it makes it so much more manageable for people starting out, and I I know so many people are just like, oh, it's just so much to cut out, dairy cut out, you know, milk, eggs, fish, Meat, red meat, all those kinds of things. But if you just say choose the healthier option, it makes it so much more of an easy decision to go. Okay, well, I can eat the apple over the, over the, the muesli bar. I can eat the vegetables and leave them as most much of the meat as possible. If I don't want to offend my great aunt who's made this food for me, and <laughs> or whoever it is that's cooked for you, that's such an easy way to talk, to, way to approach it. And I also think just from what you've said about the going back to the running, I think it's a great. A great point to make is if all of it seems like a lot, do the one that you're most familiar with again. Like Andrew, you know, he started running again because he was most familiar with it. He it was he remembered that it was fun. He remembered that he used to enjoy it. And so he just went back to that thing. And that's just like the start post and then just started doing that more. So if you really used to hang out with your friends or, you know, you, you used to, you know, spend more time doing yoga or whatever it is for you, just start doing that again. If you've lost it along the way between parenting or between work or however you've lost balance because it's all work and it's no no time for anything, I think just trying to add in, just block out time. And I think both Andrew and I can talk about sometimes you have to sacrifice is waking up that bit earlier to do those things, which seems like a nightmare at the start, especially if you're underslept, but getting up. I know Andrew can talk about his morning swim in a second, which I find really inspiring. but myself, I get up early and I either go to the gym or I do yoga or meditation before my kids wake up to start the day. And even though I don't want to, because my kids have just started sleeping through the night because they're only little, and the thought of sacrificing sleep again <laughs> seems like a nightmare. The extra getting up at five sets up my day to be a better parent, a better mother, a better wife, a better human for myself, better version of myself really, because I give back to myself in those hours and give back to my body and it sets me up to have a great day eating healthy. But whatever it is for you, whenever you can fit it in, it might not be 5 a.m., it's a good thing to start with the familiar things as well.
1: That, that's a really good point. I, I think you you make some s- Very excellent points there, Corinna. I just want to go back to the food, though, a little bit. The the other reason for thinking between the healthier and the less healthier option is that nothing's a perfect choice and nothing's a terrible choice. There are just slightly better choices you can make. But what that gives you as you're making that choice is is it, it, it starts to educate you about what is healthier food. And as you, you know, you you start to think, well, should I have the red meat or should I have the the chicken? Then you start reading and you realise that chicken's actually as full as as fat that as red meat is. And so then you start to realise, well, maybe chicken isn't so healthy either. So therefore, next time I will get the vegetable vegetarian dish on the on the menu. And so I think that just starts you learning more. And many of the people that Matt, perhaps your podcast, you're going to have a lot of listeners who are already vegan and they're probably thinking, well, this is all obvious, but there will, <laughs> there will be some who obviously have not really thought about this and they don't understand what really is a healthy food. And there's so much confusing information on the internet about this. So I think you have to leave it up to yourself to try to understand what your body feels is the best thing to eat. And you, your body's going to get it right many, m- much of the time. And so if you're sitting there and looking at the creamy pasta you know, with carbonara and full of cream and all that sort of thing. And you think, oh, it's, it's pretty healthy because there's no meat in it. Yet you could see a, a tomato pasta that's, you know, got, you know, you know, some extra spinach in it and things. It's, it's like your body's going to probably crave for the, the tomato pasta in the, in the first place. So I think those little things help us educate ourselves so that we can make good decisions.
0: That is so true. And, and again, we mentioned this in all podcasts, that education is is key. Like uh, comu- The community, having a community, so having that connection that Andrew's talking about, not just with your family and friends, but having some connection with people who are also on a similar, it's, even if you have friends at work who also want to get healthy, just starting to talk about these five pillars as well as obviously diet um, with them and say like, hey, how about we start a meditation after work for 10 minutes in like a abandoned staff room that no one's in or how about we forming some some support groups is really important but the education is um super important like just just reading about and learning as you go about like Andrew's talking about the red meat and the chicken the fats in those or the hormones in those foods or those kinds of things just slowly educating yourself really helps you to arm yourself and build that conviction and Commitment to a plant-based diet.
1: The the point you make about community support is is vital. I often talk about uh, a study. If we have one one medical study to talk about is the Dean Ornish study. I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of this. Dean Ornish is a amazing guy in the United States who's been thinking this way for already thirty. 30, 35 years, and he took a bunch of people in and, and really put them on a on – a, he randomized them into two groups, and one group got a, a very strict vegetarian, almost vegan diet. They were allowed a little bit of egg white and a little bit of low-fat yogurt, but that was all, but no calorie restriction. Uh, they were allowed to eat whatever they wanted as long as it was that sort of diet. Uh, he also got them to do what he called sort of mindfulness, which included yoga and stretching, uh, but also some, some visualization. Uh, and he also got them to exercise. Uh, they did three hours a week of heart rate zone sort of adjusted exercise so that they were working hard. And the fourth thing he did was bring them together twice a week to talk about their experience. And just understand what they were doing, and talk, you know, educate each other about the feelings they were having and the benefits they were getting. Uh, whereas the other group got just lived the way they normally did, the randomized group. And so when he compared those two and looked at their heart, their arteries in their hearts, the the group that had had the four pronged approach, which was you know vegetable strong diet uh, plus the exercise plus the mindfulness plus the community support, had de- had reversed their heart disease, their coronary which is the the artery that supplies the heart, the coronary arteries had had the the blockages had become less blocked, which is amazing. I don't know of a drug in medicine that does that. The group who was in the control group and just lived the way they normally did, their arteries had all become more blocked. But the, 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 the... the good group, the you know the, the good lifestyle group, had uh, improved their heart disease. And that really, it's, it was published in 1990. And the worst thing for me is that as a doctor, I graduated in 1989. My first year as a doctor was 1990 as an intern, we call it. I've never heard of this study until like three years ago when I read about it then. And so it's, a, it's almost, a, I'm ashamed to think that there's so much good stuff already published for many years that many of us doctors do not know about.
0: I think the thing is, because I was just thinking about this recently, because the World Health Organization had the study come out a couple of years ago or a year ago about bacon and processed meats. And I talked to our our Australian government's food advisory board, the people, and said, why isn't there safety Mornings on these packaged foods and on sausages and all those things. Like there is on cigarettes and those foods because there should be. It's been listed alongside them. I know it doesn't have the same disease rates as smoking but it's still we know it causes cancer and yet there's no labeling on these foods you know there's no labeling on your sausages and bacon rashers and your sliced chicken deli meats and those things saying these cause cancer and they should you know you wouldn't feed a, you, know, you wouldn't feed cigarettes to your kids or asbestos but these foods cause cancer and the people in the at, at our our food like the regulation people they said we've never heard of the study we've never heard of it We don't know anything about it. Can you talk to us, the next person? Because we've never heard of it at all. All of our scientists here don't know anything about that World Health Organization information. And I just, I don't think that they're necessarily bad people or that your your education's bad. It's just that there's so much information coming in and it's just so hard to keep on top of it. And which is why, even though people hate patients referring to Dr. Google, it's why sometimes we need to do our own research as well. Because the doctor's... And they want to help us. They're not. They're not hiding information because they're manipulating us and trying to get us to be their patient. They're hiding it just because they. Do, they just don't know it. They just haven't found it because there's just so much information coming out. Do you think that's fair to say?
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I've, there's there's well documented uh, situations now in in medicine in healthcare where a, a drug or a intervention has been found to be effective using you know, the, the, using the sort of definition that it's been studied in multiple studies and each of the studies has shown that that thing is effective. And then the lag until it becomes common practice or even written up in guidelines by professional societies can be as long as, you know, sort of 10 to 15 years, which is just mm-hmm. astonishing. And we all, we all understand that the smoking and cancer uh, came, you know, the, the knowledge that smoking was likely to be causing cancer lung cancer, you know, was probably 30 years before there was really any prohibition. Not There's not true prohibition, but any, you know, real sort yeah. of alerts put on, on cigarettes. And so I, I, I think this is something that we have to understand is always going to happen. And that's what it feels like for plant-based nutrition now. We're, we're at the stage where the evidence is starting to grow but nobody knows about it and not enough people know about it. We all know, those listeners of yours know about it, but the average doctor has no idea about this. One of the other reasons I think is that most people, let alone doctors, uh, we, we, we like to keep things as they are. We're all about status quo. And so you have to have overwhelming momentum and, and evidence before you're going to change things. And so we as, as patients uh, have to understand that, when we go to our doctor, our doctor's going to likely be practicing what was really valuable 10 years ago, and they're probably still practicing it. And they'll gradually change. Like you said, they're good people. They're going to change, but they just need to have the overwhelming evidence and the whole of their peers, all their peers doing it as well, before they'll do it. And this is where we are now. While, while the people that eat vegan is what, two or three percent of the community, we don't have a big enough voice to get to the average doctor and tell them that this is this is what, you know, is the the way to be
0: exactly, exactly. So if you're out, there, if you're out there listening, and your doctor isn't on board with this way of eating, just you know, wait <laughs> ten years, or find a different doctor, or just start giving him like bits of information or research that you found, and say, have a look for yourself. Send him an email with a few. Doctor like Ornish study study and see if you can slowly give him the, enough information <laughs> to get him or her across the board.
1: <laughs> well, the good thing is there there are some plant based. GPs now in most oh. urban communities, maybe not every rural community, but most urban communities around the the Western world will have a plant-based doctor now. They're hard to find, but, but we, we certainly have them in Melbourne where we live, hey? Dr Malcolm McKay? Yeah, definitely. He's one. Yeah, and I listened to your podcast with Anthony Hudge. You, you did a, f- a couple of episodes ago. He's another one. So the, in Melbourne, we have some. So it's great to know that they're there.
0: Yeah, so it's so good. It's so exciting. And, and Dr. McKay, he does Skype consults as well. If you're like, oh, he's too far away from me, you can... You can find him on Skype and have your have your consult over the internet.
1: Absolutely, we're growing. The number is is definitely the you know growing. The proportion of doctors that care about this. I'm noticing some of my friends are starting to you know eat better and think more about this. But but I'll be honest, it is hard to change large groups of of professionals. That's for sure.
0: Very very true. So as far as your work goes, how have you found? This way of thinking, this way of living, what has it been the ripple effect in your patient care?
1: I wish I could say it had been more than than it has been, uh, Corinne. I I did. I was invited to give what we call at the hospital the grand rounds, which is a is a basically a big talk in front of all of the doctors in the hospital come together. And I was invited to give this maybe three years ago in two thousand and fifteen, uh, and I gave a talk about how my story. Had had developed and how I'd you know now become very lifestyle focused, and I was very impressed that that the majority of the people listened to my talk. They literally put down their phones instead of you know doing their emails while they're listening to a talk like that or having their laptops open they all sort of closed them the laptops and phones and 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 had their eyes on me listening
0: that's a really good sign <laughs> well
1: I thought it was a, I thought it was a really good sign that they they cared to be interested and it wasn't because it was me it was more that I was telling them what they could to do to be more healthy in my experience and I was very enamored by the the, the sort of a, a response I got from the clinicians a lot of them came up to me in the in the cap and the coffee shop the next day and said, you know, that was a great talk, thank you very much. But I'll be honest, I I haven't seen a lot of change amongst many of those. They're interested in what I do, they they kind of follow me on Facebook and see some of the things that I say on, on my social media, not that I'm very prominent in that area, but but i i guess they they're interested but not a lot of them have changed uh and so i i'm 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 struggling to get to 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 all of them we need more of this sort of stuff podcasts and and all the the different social media ways to get to people and maybe a few have changed and i just don't know about it yet but but it is hard to change my 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 professional community i'll be honest i
0: i i think that that's as you were saying before about change i'm going to tell a silly little uh, anecdotal nothing but I remember my mum years and years ago she gave me this book called Who Moved My Cheese. Have you ever read that book?
1: I uh, I have. I <laughs> can't remember the story that I've met. I've, I can't
0: remember it. any of it. It's teeny and very easy to digest if you're just looking for a tiny self-help book. It's a it's a, at least you can chew through it in an hour or something. It's very quick to read. The point of it which I thought was a really good and it's very su- suits this and um i take it with me the message was that mice if a mice had a pile of cheese and humans have a pile of cheese so let's in this case the pile of cheese is our standard australian way of eating (laughs) and the mice have their standard mouse way of eating and the, the the mice eat all the cheese, and the che- let's say that their cheese made them sick. They would then go off and try and find some other kind of food that didn't make them sick, and they wouldn't stay around grieving the loss of their cheese that was making them sick. They'd just be like, "Ah, oh, the cheese is gone. I'm gonna go off and find some raspberries, or I'm gonna go off and find some grapes, or I'm gonna go off and find the thing." And they and they wouldn't. They'd just. Most animals would just move off and go, okay, that food wasn't working for me. I'm going to go off and find a more suitable food. But humans, unfortunately, with our conscious, our conscious minds and our thinking brains and all those kinds of things, when we have the same confrontation where something needs to change, like our pile of cheese or our standard Australian diet in this instance isn't working for us, instead of going, it's not working for us, okay, dusting, our hands, dusting ourselves off and moving on and finding a whole food plant-based diet, we sit there for a really long time and we cry for the loss of our cheese and we grieve for it and we hug it and we beg for it to stay with us and start working for us and, you know, we really desperately cling to these old habits and these old these old things that are no longer working for us and it, it, it actually is... It's unhelpful. But I'm telling the story because it is normal. If you're holding on to cheese or you're holding on to eggs, you're not alone. Most humans do hold. We don't like change. We don't want to move away from the things that we've come to know and love easily. So often, unfortunately, it takes for me, it took me to go numb from the waist down. For Andrew, it took his big work crisis. For a lot of people on this podcast, it has taken a huge thing. And what I hope is the more episodes you listen to, the less likely you have to reach that place of, oh, I actually have, I can't go backwards because I'm going to die if I go backwards. I'm not going to be able to walk if I go backwards. I'm not going to be able to work if I go backwards. I, I hope that listening to these stories and these doctors and these people in this podcast, it you won't you won't feel inclined to hold on to that pile of cheese or that way of eating as tightly and you'll be more open to moving forward before you get to the intensive care like Andrew's talking about here or before you, you know, get some kind of lifestyle chronic disease that makes everything so much harder.
1: It's a great story and you're a very (laughs) good storyteller, Corinne. (laughs) it's uh it's true humans are so hard to change in behavior and i i still looking for the to the magic bullet to help move yeah, a community to, to make change. We need it. We need it in so many areas of, uh, of, of the way we oh, live.
0: plastics. We've got so many things that, you know, are damaging the earth that we're just like, no, we have to stick with fossil fuels. <laughs> we have to stick with them. We have to stick with these single-use plastics. We have to stick with them. And you're like, no, there's hemp now. <laughs> you can make so many things out of, you know, recyclables that we just refuse to do. It's re- Ridiculous.
1: <laughs> I, I, I sometimes wonder. I've been reading a lot about sleep lately, and we touched on it before. I, I wonder how much our whole Western world, maybe less in the in the the less developed, more, uh, sorry, less developed areas, but in the, in the more developed countries, I wonder how much we're sleep deprived and how much that's affecting our our consciousness, our gen, you know, our community consciousness, to make us less likely to want to make these changes. If you read. You know, very deep. There's a great book I've just been reading called Why We Sleep. Uh, a, an author called Matthew Walker, who's uh, it's one of the bestsellers in 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 the last 12 months, and it's a really good expose. He's a sleep scientist, and he goes through all the reasons that we should get more sleep, basically, and and how resistant we've become to to getting enough sleep. And a lot of the things that have happened in the last Probably a decade or two with technological advancement, particularly around smartphones and tablets and all this stuff, is making it even harder for us to get sufficient sleep. Social media, all this stuff. My children, my oldest daughter's up at night, you know, texting and social media before she goes to bed, and you know, it's just changing the patterns of our lifestyles. And I just wonder how much sleep deprived we are, so that therefore our collective consciousness can't really make as much change. We're not as agile as a as a community. And I wonder how much that plays a part. I'm sure.
0: I'm sure every single every single one of these, I've just put them in front of me, of your five pillars does would play a role. Because if you're not mindful, if you're not present, you're always in the future thinking about how much money you can get, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> which most people are thinking about all the time. If you're always there thinking about that and you're stressed and you're underslept and you haven't exercised, you don't have those good, happy vibes, you're not connecting with anyone, which also gives you that good, happy juice inside – and you're eating these foods that make us feel sluggish, and you're constipated. Like, if I was feeling like that every day, which I was, and and you were, mm-hmm. I wouldn't give two rats about <laughs> about climate change, probably, because I'm just grinding through the days, just wound up tight, constipated, and feeling horrendous.
1: Couldn't agree more, and I think therefore if we can just start on the path, one step at a time, don't expect it to be a rush change. You're not going to become uh, perfect at all those lifestyle habits overnight. It's going to take a a journey, but enjoy it.
0: And make it fun. Like the running, as Andrew said, you know, going back to that, find the things and find the recipes that work for you. If you have to start out just adapting the the meals that you eat, probably eat 20 meals that are pretty much your standards that you eat each week. Find the whole food plant-based versions of that. And there will be just Google like whole food plant-based spag bowl, whole food plant-based lasagna, whole food plant-based, whatever it is, curries, pastas, salads, sandwiches, whatever it is that you need for breakfast, muesli bars. There's so many different things. Start with what you know, what's familiar. Don't go trying to make, you know, aquafaba, quinoa, chia seed, meringue made out of the Buddha's tears straight away. <laughs> you, can, you can make that down the track when you're a pro. <laughs> Start out just making a, a hummus tomato lettuce sandwich and, and take that to work for the day. You know, it doesn't have to be complicated. It just seems that when you're looking at all of it thinking, oh my gosh, I have to change my diet, exercise, mindfulness, sleep and connection all at once. Just start running, start doing yoga, start taking three minutes, put your hands on your chest and just breathing into your heart space once a week, once a day, whenever you can. They're all just steps, like Andrew said, baby steps in the right direction.
1: One of the things I did, I didn't tell you before, Corinne, is start with a green smoothie every day. I, I just get, you know, if, you, if you've got a good blender at home, and even if you don't have a, an excellent blender, you can still make it, just literally put in two or three greens, you know, spinach, kale, and maybe some celery, and a couple of fruits, you know, some banana, apple, orange, easy easy fruits, Maybe some berries because I think they're good value for you. Just bung it all in the blender, whizz it up, and, and drink that every day. And and I started doing that maybe three years ago and bought a Vitamix. I love it. It's my favorite you know, thing in the whole house. And and that has been a, such an easy way to get healthier foods into me every morning. Uh, I, I might miss some days, I'll be honest. But, but in general, I try to get one of those in, and, and I find it really an easy way to just eat healthy food.
0: It's great. And it's done for the day. It's done in two, you put it in in two seconds, you drink it in two seconds, and then you can just go on and feel like you pat yourself on the back that you've made a great choice for yourself for the day. So, Andrew, what would be your three biggest tips for people? Apart from Greensmith, you've given us a fair few good tips, but what would be your three other ones for people who wanted to start today?
1: About eating or in, in general?
0: In 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 general.
1: Because, because I've talked about it already, sleep, I, I think it could be perhaps the most important thing to do. And I suspect if you, if, if you as a listener wanted to see if you're sleeping, if you could sleep better, the simple thing to do would be give yourself a, a seven or a 14 or a 30 day challenge of going to bed at somewhere between nine and 10 PM. That sounds hellishly early. For you, Corinne, with a young family and me with a still young family, it's not that hard to go to bed at that stage. You might get woken up in your situation. Luckily, my girls now sleep through uh, through the night because they've become teenagers nearly. Uh, but, but that's a really easy way to get more sleep. I did this 30-day challenge and I just noticed that within a few days, I just felt like a different person. Within a week, I was starting to become... Like the fog was clearing. And by the end of the whole month of doing this, I literally found I was so much more clear in my thinking that when I would go to a meeting, people would kind of listen to me more. Or I would only say things when I really needed to say them and therefore they were more of more influence. And so I just think that if we can clear that sleep deprivation that many of us have – it's going to make a big difference. So, sleep's my, my first tip. Uh, you, you're not going to let me use the green smoothie tip, but but for
0: <laughs> <laughs> you can use it again. Well, Go no, on. well, that
1: that would be the the, the easiest way to start uh, to start a a, a, a plant based diet. It, it
0: actually is how I started. I'd make a big, huge one. I was pregnant or breastfeeding. When I first went went vegan, and it was the first, was the easiest vegan breakfast I could think of. And I just put every single thing in it because my husband wanted me to give my, our son the best food. And I wanted to too, but I didn't know how. And I was so exhausted. He just, my husband bought me the stick blender, a stick blender at the time. So it wasn't even a good blender. And just we massively started with the smoothies and it was delicious and easy. And I could get back to breastfeeding and nappies and all those things. And it was super quick and effective. I really, I highly recommend it. And I haven't, we haven't mentioned these two ever on the podcast. So you are nailing new tips. Right. <laughs>
1: well, I'm pleased that the green smoothie is going to be a winner. Um, th- now, the third, the third tip is to get out and do exercise, and I think somehow to make it in nature. And, you know, a lot of people do go out and run around the parks or they might go for a, for a swim at the beach, uh, but a lot of people like, kind of spend a lot of time in the gym and spend a lot of time on a treadmill running. And I just think if you can mix nature and exercise, it's going to be even better I'm not to say it's wrong. Don't, don't, I'm not telling people it's wrong to go to the gym and be on a treadmill at all, but particularly at the moment where it's quite cold, but but in Melbourne where we live. But, but generally, if we can mix exercise and nature, I think it's going to give you more enjoyment and I think there's going to be a benefit from it. As you referred to before, Corinne, right now I'm going through a sort of challenge of, of getting myself up early every morning and going down to, to the beach. I live only 10 minutes away from the beach here in Melbourne. Go down to the beach and have a swim at sunrise. It's a it's a sort of been termed swim rise uh, out of after two guys that I I have been very much inspired by called the Happy Pair, uh, two in, identical Irish twins who live in Greystones just out of Dublin. They have a big cafe and a vegetable shop and 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 a basically uh, a movement towards better living based around vegan plant based eating. And they go for a swim in in the really cold sea in Dublin every morning all year or as many mornings as they can. Sometimes it's too rough or they're they're away, but if they can, they go and jump and jump. Put themselves in the sea at at whatever time sunrise is, and so I've been trying it this year. I've been doing it since February, and I just love it now. Getting out, it's cold at the moment. It was warm in the summer, just but getting out and, and dunking yourself in the water, swimming, you know, a few few hundred strokes just to enjoy being uh, having your head under the water and getting cold, and it's just it's just. It's, it's invigorating to get out of the water, uh, see the sunrise. Don't see it every day because of clouds, but you you see it most days and it just really wakes me up. And so that sort of nat- nature based exercise is my third tip.
0: I think that that is a great tip and I love, I, I hate going to the gym. I do it because sometimes I want to do different things that I can't as easy do in nature but I love running in nature and walking in nature and hiking in nature and swimming in the ocean so I think that's a great tip I always think about the negative ions is it negative ions I talk about in nature is that made up yeah did I I, make that up
1: no not at all I've heard of it I can't (laughs) say exactly what it means
0: (laughs) it's an energy that you get from nature I'm pretty sure I don't know You will have to Google that yourself and find out the answer uh, if you're listening. But I love the feeling that I get when I'm in nature. It's my favorite thing. I make sure I get out into it every single day. And I think it's a really great tip to finish on. Before we finish... You had a pro- an incredible podcast yourself that was called The New Normal Project.
1: That's it, New Normal Project. Which is
0: on iTunes still. Yep. People yep. can listen to it there, and they've got so many different episodes with great guest speakers and episodes about all these things. So you can go there and listen and learn about all these sleep, meditation, diet, you know, all these related things currently. But you also have another podcast, which is called?
1: Oh, it's called Mastering Intensive Care. And it's it's really for intensive care professionals and how we can all get better at, at bringing ourselves to work. Uh, so it's a, it's a bit probably slightly different to your audience, but if anyone's interested in hearing what we think about as doctors it's uh, it's it's worth a listen. I think it's a
0: really, really wonderful thing that you're doing for, um, for other doctors as well to get them to because because I imagine that the burnout and the stress in that job would be really, really, really extreme.
1: Well, it is, and I, I burnt myself out, so I understand it can become very stressful. What we talk about is is is, is also about being good doctors in terms of communication and leading our fellow teams. Uh, that that's talking to families and talking to patients. That sort of thing is really important, but also managing stress. So I ask all my guests, you know, how they're dealing with that, and I'm interested to hear. Very few of them lead the sort of lifestyle we've talked about in, in this podcast. They they might think they eat healthily, but they, they're not usually vegetarian or even vegan. They say they don't. A lot of them tell me they don't need much sleep. They believe that they can live on four or five hours sleep. And I just one final sort of uh, uh, um, piece of evidence that, that I got from this book that I was reading, Matthew Walker's book about why we sleep. He talks about the, the, the number of people that truly are genetically designed to sleep fewer than sort of four or five hours sleep is less than one percent. So all those tough people that say I can I can live on four or five hours sleep, you probably are chronically sleep deprived unless you're one of the lucky few who's got some genetic defect really that makes them able to have less sleep.
0: Wow, that's very interesting. Because a lot of the big hitters across the world say I only need four hours. You know, I only need this. I wake up at four a.m. and I go to bed at midnight one a.m. And I always think, gosh, it sounds actually impossible.
1: <laughs> I think they get themselves into a into a situation where they are chronically sleep deprived, but they can function. And many have other stress management aspects of their lives. So therefore, they they can just manage. And, and I think this is what happened to me. I, I slept maybe six hours, not four, but six hours a night for probably 15 years as a doctor, trying to do all this research in my spare time at night. I'd stay up late after the family went to bed. And and I think it got me into the spiral that led to my stress, led to my anxiety, led to some bad behaviour that I did at work. And and in the end, I just think it was it was it was the sleep as well. You know, there was other things, but I think the sleep was a big contributor. And so I just like to to tell people that that if they can try to get more sleep and just see what it does for you.
0: Mm, yes, definitely. I think it's so. I've been going to bed early recently because I did my five a.m. wake-ups ups just recently in the last month, and I feel so much clearer in my head. I really do. I'm noticing such a difference um, going to bed early because I always was like 11 o'clock, midnight, you know, it'll be fine. But, yeah, no, it's so, it makes such a difference. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast, Dr. Andrew. It's a great <laughs> pleasure, Karen, Andrew, and sharing all of this. It's been so helpful. I think that even though this is uh, – you know, majority it's a how to go vegan podcast why to go vegan and all those kinds of stories about the benefits of this way of eating I really am so thankful for you for bringing in these other these other areas which which they help support a whole food plant-based diet they help support healing you know without any of these things it's so much harder to to maintain a plant-based diet and it's just so much harder to feel good in general so thank you so much.
1: Well, it's, a, it's really is a pleasure. I think you are doing an amazing job with the podcast. We just, I mean, your podcast specifically is really good. I've listened to a few episodes and heard some of the stories of the people that have uh, had their great transformations. And those stories are the way, I think, to inspire people. I think, you know, hearing those stories makes people just think, maybe I'll try that. You know, I was thinking about it, but now I've heard someone did something and they've become... They've explained that they feel a lot better and their disease is, is is radically transformed. Maybe I'll try it. So, so I love the podcast as a medium. I you know I really think I listen to some amazing podcasts. It changes my lives every my life every day. And I, I just think this podcasting business is just so good. So well done for what you're doing, Corinne.
0: Thank you so much and well done to you too. I think that's such a great and much-needed service that you're doing for doctors. So thank you for doing that because I might be in the ICU one day and I want my doctor to be relaxed and well-slept when he's operating on me. Well,
1: with a, with a lot of more than just luck, but with your the way you live, I reckon you've got a low chance of getting to the ICU and that's a really good thing to know.
0: Ah, I hope so. I hope so. Is there anything at last that you wanted to share at all before we before we sign off?
1: No, I think we've covered... Pretty pretty well, everything.
0: Thank you so much. It was
1: great. Great, great. I'm, I'm, I hope we can chat again soon one day.
0: Thank you, Andrew, and thank you all for listening and supporting this podcast. If you haven't yet subscribed, as I said before, there's, I put out new episodes every Sunday/Monday, which you can listen to on iTunes and Stitcher app for Android. And if you want to follow this podcast, you can follow it on social media. I put out updates, upcoming guests, bits and pieces each week, and all obviously the new episodes that come out. So you can follow me there. That's on the When Life Gives Your Lemons Go Vegan Facebook page. If you have a moment and would like to support this podcast further, I'd be so grateful if you could head over to iTunes and leave this podcast a five-star rating and a kind review so that this podcast becomes more visible in the iTunes rankings and reaches more people who might be living in fear and uncertainty for their future. Thank you so much in advance and thank you to all the people who supported me last week when I was having some unkind reviews and comments about last week's episode, which was very, very difficult for me. So I really appreciate all of your love and support. It means a lot to me. I don't take it for granted ever at all. Everyone who wrote a review, you know, everyone who you know reviewed my Facebook page or reviewed the podcast or wrote a nice comment supporting me during that time, it it meant so much to me. So thank you all so much for your ongoing support. I really, truly can't even express how grateful I am. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll see you next week.